0: Discipline being explicitly commanded in the scriptures that what we're gonna talk about tonight is an implication from the gospel you say you believe. Now last week we began talking about what is a pretty misrepresented topic, this topic of church discipline and those words, I don't even really like the title, church discipline. It can conjure up a lot of things. Uh, That may not necessarily be in line with what the Bible teaches, but what we talked about, I want to review. And I hope that you'll listen as we review. I gave you a definition. I'd encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to write this definition down. Because when you hear these words, church discipline, they might actually register in your mind the way that the Bible hopefully teaches that they should register. Because as we discussed at length last week, and I'd encourage you to listen to that sermon on our podcast or website... There's a lot of misunderstanding surrounding this topic, but here's a biblical definition, the best I can forge of church discipline. Church discipline is a congregational decision to remove someone from church membership and bar them from the privileges of membership for the purpose of repentance and restoration. Church discipline is a congregational decision to remove someone from church membership and to bar them from the privileges of membership, one of which we exercise tonight, for the purpose of repentance and restoration. Last week we talked about in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 6 how there needs to be a right attitude behind church discipline. That when you read verses 1 through 2 of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, it gives us the idea that our attitude towards sin as a church should not be indifference. It certainly should not be arrogance. It shouldn't even being grieved but not doing anything, no. The proper attitude towards sin is mourning that leads to action. That the Bible calls us as believers, if we are covenanted together in church membership, that's more than just we vote on certain expenditures as a church. No, you have covenanted to care for and to hold accountable other living, breathing Christians in this church. That is what you committed to, whether or not that was explained to you properly or not. That is what church membership is. And so we have to have a right attitude about sin. And really, that's what I was trying to drive at last week, is that the action of church discipline is irrelevant if we don't have the right attitude. That's where it starts. But then we talked about last week the right action of church discipline. What is church discipline? What does it look like? How should it be done rightly? When we talked about how the right action is for it to be congregational, verse number four tells us that Paul is instructing the church as a whole to remove a man who is in open, flagrant sexual immorality from the church. Paul didn't have the authority, even himself, to say you should just remove him. He said, I've made my judgment, but you all, when you gather together in the name of the Lord, you have to make that decision. No pastor unilaterally has the right to discipline and remove members from from membership. And then we talked about that church discipline not only removes someone from membership, but there is a sense in which it affects how we relate with someone. We're not castigating them and you know, putting a scarlet letter on them or anything like that, but the end of verse 11 gives us the idea that our conduct towards this person should reflect the fact that we no longer think they are believers, or we no longer think they are acting as a believer. Look at the end of verse number 11 in 1 Corinthians 5. He gives this list, which I'll explain tonight, and he says, with such a one, what's the last phrase? No, not to eat. Now, I explained last week, that doesn't mean that you cannot have Thanksgiving with someone who's under church discipline or is not a Christian. But I think Paul, at least in the immediate context, is probably referencing communion. Someone who is not a professed Christian or is living in open, unrepentant sin should not partake in communion, But there could be other instances of fellowship or ways that we relate with other people that, if we're not careful, could say, I affirm that you're a Christian. When Paul says, no, our conduct should change towards not affirming their profession, but calling them to repentance and right living, right? That's the right action behind church discipline. And then we saw at the end of verse number five that church discipline is not to punish people who are desiring to to work on their sin. No, 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 no. Church discipline is for the purpose of repentance and restoration. Look at the end of verse number five, or the beginning of verse number five. To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We want to help people. And so the Bible teaches us that sometimes if people can't respond to individual or small group correction, that the church has to take action, not to embarrass, not to hurt, but to restore them to Christ, to save them from being judged as an unbeliever. But would you agree tonight that if we're going to do what First Corinthians 5 is telling us to do, this is a lot of work. Come on, y'all. Thank you, Michael. But are we we on the same page? This is going to take work. If we're going to love people as the Bible tells us to love, if we're going to confront sin as the Bible tells us to confront sin, again, I'm not saying micromanaging. You'll get a sense of what types of sin the Bible is addressing here in just a moment. But if we're going to do this, it's going to be work. It's going to be soul-wrenching work. Soul-wrenching work. It is emotionally difficult. And that's why, as I talked about last week, many of you probably have been in church for decades and have never seen a church ever remove someone corporately from membership. And I posed the question to you last week, and I'll pose it to you again for those of us who weren't here last week. I want you to ask in your mind why that is. Is it because we think our church is not dealing with the problems that the church at Corinth dealt with? Or is it that churches have largely ignored a command in New Testament Scripture? I would submit to you it's likely the latter. It's likely the latter. Now, that's what keeps a lot of churches from doing this. But we need to ask the question then, okay, Pastor Mike, what if we don't? What if we choose to tolerate people who clearly are unregenerate in our church, who have apostatized, who have renounced their faith even, who no longer, they may have been dunked in a baptistry, but 10 years later, they don't even believe in Jesus anymore. What if we just choose to just let it be? What if somebody who claims the name of Christ, but refuses to assemble with his people, not because they're physically unable, but because they don't value it, what if we just say, you know, what? we're not going to deal with it because I'm afraid that it might hurt their feelings or hurt our church's spirit. Well, our passage tonight answers that question. Because in our passage tonight, I'm just going to have two main points we're going to work through. I want you to see the right effect of church discipline. The right effect. And then I want you to see the right candidate for church discipline, okay? Why do we need to follow this command? What is at stake if we don't? And I I want us to see then who should we discipline if that opportunity comes, and I hope it doesn't, but let's be realistic, it will. Here's the first thing I want you to see in verses six through eight is the right effect of church discipline. What, why would God tell us to do this when it is so soul-wrenching and so difficult and and really not something any of us want to do, including myself? Let's read verses six through eight together. Your glorying, Paul says, is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." What is Paul doing here? He's using an Old Testament illustration, which I'll explain in a minute, to show us that as the new people of God, we too must cleanse our church from open, serious, and unrepentant sin. He gives the illustration of Passover, and you may or may not be familiar with this. It's in Exodus 12, if you want to read into it a little bit more. But in Exodus 12, what they would do is they would sacrifice the lamb put the blood on their doorposts, and because of the blood, what would happen? The death angel would pass over them. They were saved. But accompanying that work of salvation was a picture of cleansing sin. And they were commanded as people to remove all of the leaven from their houses. Now, it's a misnomer to think that leaven always represents sin in the Bible. Actually, several sacrifices were commanded to be given with leaven. So it's not always a bad thing to have leaven and I don't even think it would be sinful for communion bread to have leaven in it. But nonetheless, the idea here Paul is saying is that in the same way that these people who were cleansed by the blood of the lamb should purge sin out of their house, he's then applying that to the church. And he's basically saying this, you as a church are a, a, a house or a new lump of dough. And because you, he says, I think in verse number seven, you are unleavened. You have been purified by Christ. If you are a church, you have already been cleansed from sin. And yet the reality remains that sin can get into the church. And what he says is sin has an effect much like leaven. What do we know about leaven? If you put a little bit, a tiny bit in, what does it do? It spreads, it permeates. What is Paul saying here? That the reason we have to address sin is because a sinful culture, a denial of holiness in the church has a corrupting effect on the church that we have to deal with sin because that sin could then hijack the culture of the church and create a culture of tolerating sin in the church. And so as this, in the same way as this Old Testament household would get all the leaven out of their house, Paul is saying, hey, you're a new lump of bread. How'd you like that if I complimented you that this morning? Hello, new lump of bread. He says, you need to get out the leaven or you're gonna spoil the work that Christ is doing to purify you from sin. Here's what Paul is saying in this first section of scripture. He's saying that a failure to discipline, are you you with me? Okay, sorry, Robert. I didn't realize you're helping me out. A failure to discipline unrepentant members will corrupt the culture of the church. Now we gotta listen to this because this is indeed the crux of the issue. Because when it comes to removing people from membership, listen, there has never been a person removed from membership at a church that somebody didn't love, that somebody didn't wanna be their friend, that somebody didn't wanna hurt their feelings. And listen, you may, you may not believe it, I don't like hurting anybody's feelings. And so what what we often do, and I think why a lot of churches and probably often it falls on the pastor, the reason why they don't remove people from membership who've long since stopped attending God's house, who've long since stopped living publicly for Christ, who in every area, they they don't even look like a Christian anymore. The reason most people don't remove them from membership is this, we don't wanna lose them. We don't want to lose their mom or their sister or their daughter or their father who's also a church member. But you know what Paul's saying? In your effort to keep that leaven, you are choosing to lose a culture of holiness. And may I remind you that the very beginning of this letter of 1 Corinthians, look at chapter 1, verse number 2, Paul tells us that as a church, our corporate call from God is a call to be holy together. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. He says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified, or we could say called to be holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. We are called to be saints We're not called to just socialize. We are called by Christ to be his representatives on this earth. And if we do not exercise the keys of the kingdom, if we do not take action that reflects the fact that our church is united by more than just history, by more than just preferences of how a church should operate, by more than just the the desire for a small church, that we are united by the gospel, the gospel I read to you in the introduction, we will have to remove people from membership who don't represent that gospel. We know that nature itself tells us that a small corruption spreads an influence, right? Right? take a clean glass of water, drop one droplet of urine. You drinking that? Yeah, exactly right. you. That's exactly how Christ feels about a church who refuses to deal with sinful people. And when a church tolerates among its membership somebody who is publicly not representing the Lord, then they are confusing their messaging. They're saying, we preach the gospel, but we actually don't believe it. We don't believe it enough to take any action in effect of this. In fact, their church is giving an illustration of a different gospel than the one Jesus preached. And Paul says, this is a serious issue. That's why in verse number six, he says, your glorying is not good. It's serious. What does God desire? God intends for biblical churches to practice church discipline to maintain a testimony of holiness in their community. But Christians have forgotten this. You know how most Christians will think we'll maintain a testimony of holiness in our community? Not by judging the sins of these people. No, how most Christians think that we'll represent God's holiness to the world is by judging the sins of people outside the church. By Facebook ranting about the sins of organizations outside the church by how we treat people who sin are not who are not church members by making the immoral person who attends church feel like an outsider by making a political statement on the sins of the culture by boycotting a business that may support an immoral agenda but listen tonight even Paul himself says that if that's your view of how to represent God's holiness you are misguided You have directed your focus onto something that is not your job to judge. It is the church's responsibility to judge the sins inside the church. It is God's responsibility to judge the sins outside the church. This this, uh, mistaken idea that as Christians, we find and represent our holiness in the culture by just ranting about their sins is actually an ancient one, because even the people Paul's writing to had misunderstood what Paul had previously written to them about dealing with sin, and they had misunderstood it to mean that they should judge and separate from the sins of outsiders rather than insiders. Read verse 9 with me. He says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. It's really similar to the idea in verse 11 to not eat with them. So he says, in a previous letter, I told you to separate from people who are fornicators, which that's the exact sin that Paul names in verse number one. In fact, it's, it's fornication that was so strange that even the culture looked at it and said, this is weird. And you study Corinth, it's not like these are moral, upright, Bible-built people, you know? And yet there's sin in the church that is so reprehensible even to a Gentile pagan culture. And he, he clarifies, he says, no, 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 I didn't tell you to separate, verse 10, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or with the idolaters, you know what he says? Because if you were to separate from the sins of this world, you couldn't live in this world, he says in verse 10. Do you see that? What is Paul saying there? He's saying, the church, yes, we should be pure. Yes, we should not live sinfully. But he says, when I was writing to you in that letter, I wasn't telling you to judge them and to separate from them and to resign your business with them because of their immorality. That's not what I was saying. He's saying, no, instead, verse 11, I've written unto you not to keep company of any man that is called what? What? All right, y'all, I know y'all got your Bibles on your laps. Let's look at verse 12, verse 11. I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a what? A brother be a fornicator. Know what Paul's saying there? That the real issue is not someone who's outside the church, but it's someone who claims the name of Christ who's inside the church, and they are living like they're an outsider. He says, that's the person that you're supposed to deal with. And and here's what I think Paul is highlighting, that as Christians, our tendency is to get our kicks and to get our self-righteous ego boost by dealing with the sins outside the church. And what's so funny to me is so many people are willing to speak about the sins out there, yet they'll tolerate sin in here. They'll post on social media, how dare, you know, this, this agenda pushed by our politicians. Oh, how dare Target, you know. And again, I, I have opinions on all of that stuff. But yet, when there's someone sitting two rows down from them that's living in open sin, that forsakes the assembling and their selves, their selves together, who is a divisive and gossipy person, they don't say a word. You know what Paul's saying? Your focus is off. No, your focus isn't on the sins of them because they don't know any better. But if someone who names the name of Christ is living like they don't have the name of Christ, then that's when it's an issue for the church to deal with. That's why, church family, you're not gonna hear me telling you, we need to boycott this business and that business. Now, I personally do to some businesses, but I don't think I have biblical authority to tell you to do it. Because as a church, our statement about sin is not made by what we do with people out there as much as it's made by what we do with people who are are in here, who are members of Fellowship Baptist Church. And you can have your own principles. And again, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't boycott and do all those things. That's proven itself to be socially effective. But what Paul is telling us that we are supposed to discipline professed believers in verses 11 through 12. And I want you to write this down. This is, I think, the way to summarize what verses 11 through 12 are talking about. Here's the type of people we discipline and remove from membership. People who sin is outward, serious, and unrepentant. Outward, serious, and unrepentant, okay? So you might say, Pastor Mike, we all sin. Yes, myself included, by the way. We all sin inwardly and we all sin outwardly, but what Paul names in this list is supposed to give us a framework He is not intending to be exhaustive in verse number 11 because what you'll find is that there's a very similar list at the end of chapter number six that more specifically addresses homosexuality. And we see other instances in the Bible that give us reason to think that there are other things that we can remove someone from membership and all of them are handled very individually and with discernment from the Holy Spirit. But what Paul is teaching in verses 11 through 12, he's answering the question that you and I might have is, okay, this seems like overkill. I mean, you're, you're on some sort of holy tantrum. What are we supposed to do as a church? Go like, you know, punch people in the face for their sins, everyone in the church, just beat them up from the pulpit? No. Paul tells us, and he answers that question of who. Who is this person that needs to have their sin addressed in this way? Now, I told you this last week, but it's important for us to recognize that this is not the only passage that talks about this. So we need to put together our understanding of other passages that talk about this. Jesus, in Matthew 18, we'll get there in just a few weeks, he also addresses this topic. And he gives us a a step-by-step process that generally we should follow of confronting someone individually, confronting them with more than one person, and then confronting them as a church. Paul seems to, because of the seriousness of the situation, be addressing this situation on step three, maybe because the first two steps had happened or because this issue was so serious and was damaging the church's credibility so badly they needed to deal with it now. You can decide yourself, but I would tend to think both are pretty uh, valid ideas. But what we see is that Paul gives us a list of types of people. Now, I want you to think about this. Verse number 11: are the words that are listed in verse number 11, fornicator, covetous, idolater, railer, drunkard are those nouns or verbs? A noun is a person, a verb is an action. Nouns are verbs. They're nouns. Now think of why Paul says that. Because there are people who get drunk. Now that's a sin, but they're not drunkards. Are we okay? There are people who, oh, let's pick another one, fornicate, but they're not fornicators. Are we okay? So he's he's addressing things that seem to be a pattern, okay? Now, again, there are certain types of cases that you have to handle immediately, right? If if someone touches a child in our church, we church discipline them like that for the sake of our church's testimony, and then we work to restore them. We don't say, well, he said sorry. No, we recognize there's a long pattern of sin behind that. But the, the general practicing rule is that these are nouns because these are characteristics of this person's life. They have a reputation for this. They are, have a pattern of these things. And Paul is giving us a list of different sins, and the best way to summarize them is outward, serious, and unrepentant. Now listen, I believe just as much as you do that all sin is bad. Fair? Fair? all sin is bad. Are we in agreement about that? There's no sin that Jesus is okay with, okay? It's not just these ones that he's mad about. All sin's bad, but not all sin, look at verse number one, can be said this. Such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles. Not all sin crosses that level, right? Right? So these are these are different situations. We're not just responding to any type of sin. So let me just walk through these terms so you understand them. I know some of you have your First Corinthians scripture journals, and, and we use these words differently sometimes, or we don't use some of these words at all in our day. So I wanna kind of update them and define them for you. A fornicator, obviously, that's a broad term for any sexually immoral person. That would include homosexuality, but also include someone who's sleeping around. That would include someone who's cheated on their spouse. That would include someone who's, um, addicted to pornography, um, all of that. Covetous, uh, we would probably use the word greedy, and remember the, the framework of outward, right? All of us deal with greed in the hearts, but Paul seems to be addressing greed that was manifest in how they treated people, and we actually find that this lawsuit issue in chapter number six probably is connected to a greed of the heart. They are, they are um, suing or manipulating the poor lower class people because they're greedy, okay? Idolater, right? That's someone who worships a different God, and Paul's going to address this in later chapters. A railer. I don't know when the last time was you used that word, but a railer is a verbally abusive person. Now, when you and I think of church discipline, we think all the sex type stuff, right? All those type of sins, but Paul is, is naming things that are a lot more broad. He's naming people who have an unrestrained tongue, and it reminds me of James chapter number three, what does James say? He says, can, can bitter water and sweet water come out of the sp- same spring? You know what he's saying? That if someone is verbally abusive or divisive with their tongue, they might not be a Christian. And Paul seems to uh, echo that in this idea of a railer. A drunkard, right? That's a person who characteristically gets drunk, an extortioner. That's someone who robs or swindles people. And like I said, this list, in verse number 11, is not exhaustive. This isn't like, pastor, you can only address sins that are here. I think Paul is naming, based on my reading of the letter, things that were happening in the church. There are issues with greed and and swindling that are going on in the church as evidenced by chapter number 6. There are issues with idol worship in the church as is evidenced by chapters 8 through 10. And, And all these other things are going on. But here's what, what Paul is saying, that we as Christians, we need to identify outward, serious, and unrepentant behavior in the lives of those who are naming the name of Christ and who are members of our church. And as a church, he has called us when we receive someone into membership to assess their fruits of repentance, right? What does John the Baptist say when he's baptizing people? He says, bring forth fruit, that is meat, right? He says, you need to demonstrate, that's why he wouldn't baptize the Pharisees. You need to demonstrate repentance or I won't baptize you. Uh, Peter does the same thing in the book of Acts, chapter number 10 or something like that. He refuses to baptize a guy named Simon. And so as a church, when we vote on a church member, we're not just saying like, oh yeah, whatever. It's not a joking time. We don't, we don't vote on someone the first Sunday they walk through the door. No, we receive someone in membership having looked at, fellowshipped with them, hopefully before they've joined, to say, the best I know, this person seems to be a Christian. They testify of the biblical gospel. They're not uh, living in open and unrepentant sin. Their former church that they came from doesn't have them under church discipline, right? So in the same way, are we fallen? the same way that we assess fruits, meat for repentance when we receive someone into church membership, Paul is saying that that is a continual process. Think about Jesus and his parables. What is Jesus's most famous parable, the the one he starts off his ministry with? Listen up here. It is the, the parable of the soils. Remember the parable of the soils? There's four different types of soil three of them share one thing in common. They sprouted and then died for various reasons. One, um, well, one didn't sprout at all, right? Satan, the bird came and swooped down the seed and got the seed, no fruit. The second one is the stony ground that there wasn't enough depth for the roots to take place, right? You plow your fields, right? So there wasn't enough depth. So when it started to grow, it was growing. There was Seemed to be fruit, but because there was no depth and because of difficulty, it died. Eventually, there was no fruit. What was the next soil? It was the thorny soil. And Jesus says that the thorny soil, they, they, they're loving, serving Jesus, but the other things in their life beat out Jesus, and they choke out the seed, and the seed dies. And then there's only one soil that, that produces lasting and significant fruit. You know what Jesus is saying in that parable that sometimes we miss? He's saying there that it's possible for us to look at a sprout and say, this is a convert. This is a Christian. But over time, someone's profession of faith becomes tested by the cares of this life or the difficulty of this life. And sometimes the church has to update their assessment. And it's incumbent on us as a church that if someone over a period of time shows that they are not Christians by their life and that seed has died, for us no longer to receive them as members, but to cast them out as church members and then to win them back in the same way that we would treat a lost person. This does not mean that people lose their salvation. I don't believe that. But this does mean that the Bible is very clear that the best test of someone's authenticity as a Christian is not what they say when they get baptized. It's how they live their life over the long span. And if over the long haul and ultimately at the end of their life, they aren't Christians, they were never saved at all. And church membership is an implicit outflow of that. That Paul seems to think that there are going to be situations where the, the cares of this life are going to win out and they're going to evidence a dedication to sin, not a dedication to Christ as their Lord. And therefore, if after repeated attempts to win that person back and to love them back to Jesus, if they don't, if they don't respond to that, Paul says, they're probably not Christians. And God knows, but God is God hasn't given us discernment of people's heart, but yet He calls us to exercise judgment. And so we have to trust that God knows what He's doing, and that this is why church discipline is not an individual decision, it is a congregational decision. Because, much like our vote tonight, I have a lot of trust that in, as the majority of the church sees something, that is the moving of the Spirit. You know, if, if, if the church vote didn't go the way you thought it should, hey, In the same way that I was preparing myself for the fact that the church maybe think this was a terrible idea to update the chapel, we have to trust that the Spirit's in that. If we believe the people in this room are filled with the Spirit, that they possess the Spirit, we have to trust that. So that's why church discipline is a congregational decision. I want to close with, with these remarks. And I would encourage you to write down some of the questions I'm going to ask you. Because these are not things we we need to resolve immediately. But these are things as a church, and this is actually maybe timely that this happens on a business meeting, because there actually needs to be business that our church does in regards to what the Bible teaches here. And I'm not proposing anything. I'm just, I'm asking you questions and trusting that as we study the scriptures together, maybe our policies will better reflect what the scripture teaches. Uh, I'm not gonna, I I just wanna preface what I'm saying. Uh, I spoke, I spoke with, uh, Robert, and I asked him, and, and I, I, I love our church that we have really thorough records. Um, that's actually a good thing, that our church is really congregational. Um, I have some of my friends uh, in, out of town, out of state, I mean, who, who don't understand that we vote on a budget. That's not really common in IFB world, actually. I, I really do appreciate our church is very congregational, but I looked through every single page that was saved from every business meeting for a long time, and I talked to at least one person who's been in our church a long time and there is not a single recorded instance of church discipline in our entire church's history. I'm not saying anything negative about former pastors because God knows I, if, if some of those men were resurrected from the dead, they'd have a lot of issues with me and rightly so. I'm just saying, church, this, this should weigh on us. Even if there's been one or two Please listen, just for a moment. Even if there's been just a few, it, it burdens me that, that this, it, even in a lot of churches I know, that this is not a practice. And, and, and again, you can listen to the first message. I give a, a larger theology of church discipline, seeing all the books of the Bible talk about it. So what, what I'm, I want to challenge us as a church is to think if this is taught in Scripture, Heaven forbid we have to exercise this. But we do need to think through some things and reevaluate maybe if there's policies or even, and more importantly, attitudes that are causing us to be disobedient to Christ in this area. I trust that there has been at least someone in the last decades of church history here that has not looked like a Christian because of outward, serious, and unrepentant behavior. And I'm not naive enough to think that won't happen when I'm a pastor. Number one, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you view yourself as accountable to your church family for your testimony for Christ? Do you view yourself that way? Kindly, I, I think the Bible teaches that. And if you're not okay with that, Maybe you've misunderstood what it means to be a Christian and maybe we need to have a discussion. But that is what this church hopefully will do as we grow in Christ. We will love each other. We're not going to micromanage, but we will care for one another and correct one another when necessary. Do you view it, number two, as your job to encourage others in righteousness and to correct others for unrighteousness? I'm not talking about the old lady who's in everyone's business, who doesn't love other people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people you know. All of us probably have close relationships with a third to half of our church at least. I wonder if you've ever noticed things that are concerning to you as a Christian and never said a word about it. Or even encouraged someone in the Lord. That's important, too. It's not just negative. Number three, uh, this was actually told to me by Robert when I became the pastor, and I haven't done it yet because I feel like we needed to kind of get some other affairs in order. I I think our church seriously needs to consider a congregational vote to formalize a list of members. Because if you just go through our minutes and look at all the people who've been received into membership— and those who are recorded as transferring out, we probably have hundreds of members in our church. Well, that's not we're, not. we're not holding hundreds of people accountable, some who live in other states. So the best way to do that would be for us to autonomously just, you know, affirm who is Fellowship Baptist Church. Um, and I doubt there'd be many surprises there. But I will tell you, I've been asked on multiple occasions by members of our church, do you have a list of members? And I tell them each time, I think. but no such list was given to me um, other than just recollection like, yeah, they joined and yeah, they moved over here, but our church has never really, for those who maybe never transferred their membership, we've never formally removed them. And our church has a long history, so it'd be impractical for us to like figure out every single human who's ever walked through the doors, but we do need to formalize who is Fellowship Baptist Church. And I'm not going to just like ramrod that I think you as a congregation, if you care about that, should talk to me, and I want to see where your heart sits with that after meditating on this passage. Because we should know who we're accountable to, right? We should know who we're accountable to and who should hold us accountable. There should be some self-understanding of that. This is another question, and again, I'm I'm not giving you any direction where we should go with this. But I want you, this is another question you should ask yourself. How do we reconcile a biblical understanding of church membership with the reality that children will be converted and may be baptized and added to the church? Is there a category in the Bible that says this person is baptized in the membership of our church, but is not church disciplined? That's how most churches treat children, converts, who are baptized. But yet, we as a church have to come to an understanding of where we're on that. Our bylaws actually are not specific about that. They're specific about who votes, 18 years old. But they're not specific about who is subject to church discipline. I'm not saying I want to discipline other people's kids. I'm not talking about this discipline. I'm talking about membership discipline. But I'm saying that if we study the Bible, does the Bible give us those categories? Does the Bible allow us to have this intermediate category of, like, member slash non-member. We ought to decide on that. Our bylaws, unfortunately, are not clear there. Uh, number whatever, I don't know what number this is by now. Are there currently any people who would say they are members of fellowship who are demonstrating outward, serious, and unrepentant behavior? We ought to ask that. I, I I'm not saying I, I know of any or come to a conclusion. I'm not like Paul who's saying, I've already come to a conclusion, verse number three. But we ought to ask that. Because we shouldn't receive someone in membership and formalize a list of members when we think so-and-so is unrepentant and shows no fruit of repentance at all. I'm sorry, if you, were, if you clearly are not a Christian, it doesn't really matter. We shouldn't affirm you as a member. So that's a lot to think about. And again, I'm not proposing anything. Um, I'm not the unilateral person to make any of those decisions. I just ask you right down. And I'm cool. But I want you, church family, to let the weight of God's word rest on your shoulders. That if our church needs to make some practical updates to different logistical things, so that we could be more faithful to this passage, we ought to do that. And that'll be kind of a boring logistical process and maybe a heavy process, but it's necessary nonetheless. I I do think it would be necessary for us to practice church discipline should a situation arise. And again, may I say, I would much rather it never did. Um, And so let me pray with you If you have any questions, I know things like this can lead to a lot of misunderstanding or gossip, unfortunately. I would love to talk with you. Um, I can certainly always be asked a question like that. Let's pray and ask God's blessing and his guidance. Lord, we believe that uh, your spirit has led in these different decisions we've made as a church. Tonight, we thank you, God, for those who care enough about our church to be here. Um, I I pray that you would bless and honor our desire to be good stewards in this upcoming project. I pray, Lord, that if there's opportunities um, for us to recoup these costs, Lord, you would bless that. I pray, Lord, if there's a a concerned member who is convicted that they should give more regularly and proportionately out of their income, Lord, you would have even done a work to do that tonight. And then, Lord, I, I just pray for our, our response to this passage. I, some of these things weigh heavy on my heart, but, Lord, this is not my church. This is our church. And there are several logistical things that I think are standing in the way of us obeying this passage. And more importantly than that, I worry our approach to sin as a congregation as a whole is wrong. I worry we don't view ourselves as accountable to one another. I worry that we would bristle and be offended if someone encouraged us or even tried to correct us in Christ. I'm concerned, God, that there are believers who are grieved by sin and absenteeism and other things that happen in the church. But Lord, they do not have the Holy Spirit boldness and obedience to ever confront it in a Christ-like way. Lord, those things are the first things that we need to fix. I trust your spirit will guide and help us to grow in this area. And Lord, I pray that you will guide our congregation in these areas that may need to be addressed. Maybe not. I I surrender to whatever reality comes from that. But I pray you would do that. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Alrighty, well, um, Thank you so much, again, for being here and uh, your attention to the Word tonight. Kiddos, if you filled out sermon notes, I do have candy, and it is an updated stockpile of candy with lots of variety of options, and so I want to encourage you to come up here and um, participate in that. Um, And and so, uh, church, let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer, Um, or do you need to meet with kids for truth? Okay, yeah. Um, What's the details on that? I'm ignorant of that. All right, Kids for Truth, uh, if, you wanna, if you're a worker for that, please meet in the chapel real briefly tonight. All right, let's stand. Be dismissed with uh, a word of prayer, okay? Uh, Brother Judson, why don't you pray and dismiss us, and then kiddos, you can come get your candy.